it is indeed a delightful joy and privilege that we have this morning to come together like this in the quiet and solitude of a Lord's Day morning, the first day of the week, to appreciate the blessing that's ours, to praise, to exalt, and to magnify the name of God. And certainly we're thankful for the presence of each and every one. We hope that the week is starting off very well for each and everybody, and perhaps we can each be stronger and more suited, better capable and able to serve our Heavenly Father this week. As you might take note of, uh, again, the puzzles that are in the foyer, in case you haven't found that yet, our fourth puzzle in our series of puzzles is now available. I'll put that in the, the track rack there this morning. So if you hadn't picked up one of them and you wish to do so as you leave, they're just there on the left, uh, feel free to, again, take the fourth puzzle. It'll be taken from the seventh and eighth chapters of, of the book of John. One other announcement that I... Uh, perhaps would feel of a special point to make, would relate to being invited to speak in a vacation Bible school tomorrow night. And so if you happen to be in the Montrose area of Smith County, well, come and be with us tomorrow night starting at 6.30. It'll be at the Montrose Congregation again. They're just, just about a mile or so from, from Defeated Creek. So if you have the opportunity to be with us, come be with us tomorrow night, 6.30, there at the Montrose Church of Christ in Smith County. As you can see on the wall to my left, our lesson this morning, and perhaps also noted in the bulletin, has to do with why I put off obedience. Some introductory thoughts might be in order as we contemplate where we'll be moving with that particular lesson, but I suspect the key idea in it is, of course, the word obedience, at least at this point. How wonderful it is to think about how often the Bible mentions the topic of obedience. Its concept is very simple, isn't it? Doing what you're told to do. We often encourage that in our children. Sometimes we find the fulfillment met. Sometimes they seem to come short of it, just as you and I did when we were younger like they are now. But nonetheless, the concept is simple, isn't it? Doing what you are told to do. Isn't it still the case that all throughout life, that often is a very challenging thing? The boss tells you something. Maybe some other person in authority tells you something. Often one of the most challenging matters is to do what you are told to do. And yet, isn't it true that all throughout the Word of God, that is the position of us in response to God? What God says to do, our chore is not to question it. It is not to alter it, to make it suit our preference. The chore is to do it, to do what He says to do. As you might also notice, just as surely as the concept, however, is exceedingly simple, namely to do what one is told, isn't it amazing that there are so many in our world who do not do what God has said? And there may be more than one, of course, reason or cause for it, but might I ask you to consider today that there are some who do know what they need to do, but they put it off. They prefer to extend or procrastinate, wait until later, Lord, and thus that brings us to the title of the lesson today, Why Put Off Obedience? Let's give some consideration of what that means. And let's do that first by casting the spotlight on obedience itself. To affirm in our minds how thoroughly and how directly the Word of God encourages obedience. Whether it be Old Testament or whether it be the New God is a God who demands obedience. Isn't He a jealous God, affirmed for us in Exodus 20? Can we not recall, for instance, the fact that the word obey, or some form of it, 
occurs an astounding 118 times in the King James Version of the Bible. Furthermore, the word obedience occurs 12 times and every single one of them is in the New Testament. We shouldn't mistake the fact that our God is a God who demands obedience. And He is a God who not only demands it, if one is to be pleasing before Him, and if one is to garner the blessings He has promised, one must be obedient to His will. With that said, notice some of the passages that almost, in fact, cause us to stand up straighter when we hear what God said. Back in Genesis 6, verse 22, beginning in the Old Testament, here was a man who had been given the charge in light of a coming flood to construct a massive vessel. That verse simply says, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Here was Noah who took upon himself to carry out God's charge. Why? Because that's what faith is. And why? Because that's what was necessary in order to be saved. And Noah did it. He obeyed. But as we look further, weren't the children of Israel in a similar situation? In Deuteronomy 12, verse 32, closing verse to that chapter, God there said, All that I have commanded thee, observe to do it. That sounds like a demand for obedience, doesn't it? All that I've commanded, observe to do it. Four verses later, in Deuteronomy 13, 4, there the extension of it is beautiful. My ways, my commandments, obey my voice, cleave unto me. All of that stated in a way that emphasized through Moses to ancient Israel the imperative of obedience. Their job was not to question God's will. Their job was not to assert their preferences. It was to do what God had said for them to do. In fact, that leads to the question God asked in Judges 2, verse 2. On that occasion, an angel of the Lord, in fact, appeared before Israel and said, You have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Can you think of a more piercing question than that? For the God of heaven to directly appear through this angel and say, You, Israel, have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? I suspect something powerfully similar to that may occur at the day of judgment sometime on some point on that day. When God says, You have not obeyed my voice. Why? What reason could there possibly be? Later in the book of Jeremiah, that bold prophet of God was again given the charge and the challenge to remind Israel and assert to Israel the fact that they had disobeyed Him. Notice in, Je in Jeremiah 9, verses 13 and 14, where there it simply says that Israel was suffering greatly. They were under oppression and affliction, and the question is asked, Why? God answers, Because they have not obeyed my voice. If you want to know all the source of all of ancient Israel's problems, that's it. They didn't obey the voice of God. As we turn the page to the New Testament, and again, emphasize some of the importances in regard to obedience. In Acts 5.29, didn't Peter say we ought to obey God rather than men? Here was an instance in which they, namely he and John, were under great duress because they had the audacity to preach the Savior and Him resurrected. We notice that when they were told not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore, they had the backbone to say, we ought to obey God rather than men. 
Notice further in the New Testament, Romans 6, verse 17, the very text that Lucas read for us a moment ago. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, and being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. What a wonderful compliment was heaped on the Romans. They had been the servants of sin at some point in the past. Their mindset, their particular characteristic of life was in pursuit of Satan. But he says, you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. And in that obedience you have become free from sin and now you're the servant of righteousness. That transformation is still as lovely every time we read it because those of us that are Christians can appreciate the thoroughness and the description that that affords for what has happened in us. In Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9, who is heaven reserved for? Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made free, and continuing that verse, we read he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. One more time, the importance of obedience. It may well be that with those verses we have said enough from the Word of God to in fact put again in the forefront of our mind the significance of obedience. But as you continue to look further on that screen, isn't it amazing to notice that there are some who know what the Lord has said, but they choose not to obey it. There are some who are aware of God's commandments, but they prefer to procrastinate. They prefer to wait. They prefer to put off obedience to that. Now certainly it's entirely true that there are some that are ignorant to what God has commanded. That will be no excuse on the day of judgment. But our lesson today will more directly concern those who do know but have not obeyed it. In fact, why put off obedience? What might the reasons be if we were to call them reasons? Let me submit to you that let's look at four of them. And I have placed the word reasons in, in quotation marks. I think by the time we're finished, we each will agree that these are not satisfactory reasons. They merely are descriptions that are used to rationalize. But let's look at the first one if we might. Too restrictive. In light of what God has said and His commandments, some are aware of that. And there may well be more than one within the sound of my voice this morning. Who knows what needs to be done in order to bring your life into compliance with the Word of God. But to this point you have not. I might ask not only you but all of us to ponder the nature of these supposed reasons. Some might say obedience to the Word and the type of life that God demands is too restrictive. I don't want to give up some of the things in which I now have the liberty of participating. I enjoy my drinking. Maybe I like a beer after work. I like being able to go to these parties that take places at these bars and other places in Cookville. I like it! And I don't want to give that up just yet. Wait till I get a little older. Then I ask us to think a bit about the severity, the issues that surround the consideration of too restrictive. What about the fun that some think associates to the activities that are of a fleshly and worldly nature? Is it too restrictive to give those things up? 
Is God asking too much to set those sinful matters aside and give one's life in relinquishing service to, in fact, the God of heaven? In fact, the idea is this. There's a need for a recalibration in one's thinking. There is a need for an adjustment in one's attitude. Those things are not what they seem to be. Those things I just described, and yea, so many others, are not what they seem to be. Haven't we been reminded lately about the dangers and the evils and the problems and the turmoils that can come when an individual engages in such things like this? Perhaps by this point we've all heard on the news about the governor of South Carolina. The particular matters in which he chose to engage, look now at what it has cost him. Look now at what he has forfeited in light of a little bit of worldly sinful pleasure. His family's in turmoil. He has lost any hope of being able to run for president. He is now in a renegade position amongst the citizens of his own state, as many of them have called for his own resignation. I wonder was it worth it. I wonder what he'd say now. In light of all of that, consider further that any momentary pleasure that might be derived from these matters of worldly pursuit are absolutely overshadowed by the sickness, the sadness, the terrible things that it ultimately brings about in consequence. In Hebrews 11 verse 25, we read there that Moses was complimented highly because it says that he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. I don't think any of us would question or doubt that Satan can make sin look pleasurable. In many ways, he can make it look enticing. That's what the temptation is, isn't it? But when one in soberness of mind contemplates the consequence, Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with God, the people of God, than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. I strongly suspect the governor of South Carolina would now, with tears in his eyes, overwhelmingly say, I messed up. I should never have done it. I made a gigantic mistake. I've ruined my career. I've ruined my family because of it. When you and I stand today and thus ask, why might some choose not to obey? I want to sow a little more wild oats for a while. Friend, think with greater discernment. Think with greater character of appreciation for what now is and what in fact can be. Those consequences associated with it can in fact ruin your life. No wonder Paul affirmed in Romans 6 verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Let it not happen, but rather with the character of the discernment of desire to follow God, give those things up you will be thankful you did. Believe me, you will not miss it. Once you come to appreciate the calibration of what God offers, what life can be, and the promise of heaven, you will not miss it. Those things having been said, that kind of reason is one that some again have used. They truly seem to have a great enjoyment in some of the activities associated with their current life. Is it any wonder that God through John said, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God 
abideth forever. That text of 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17 reminds us this question, what is more important to you? And what is more important to me? Is it pleasure here for a while? Or is it eternity hereafter? Which is more important? That's a decision that you and I each individually have to make. If our importance and what is of most priority is this worldly means of business, then guess what we shall find? When we've reached the end of the way in the day of judgment, that's all we ever will have had. Because hell is going to stand before us and guess then what our response will be. I wished that I had done it differently. This first reason, you see, was not a reason at all, was it? Too restrictive. I can't have any fun if I'm a Christian. That isn't true. With a smile on your face, all of us can in fact appreciate the grandeur of what God offers, the blessings here and the blessings hereafter. Do we see in the life of the New Testament biblical characters sadness of spirit? Do we see a kind of life that was sad and in despair? We find that Paul seemed to live a life, though oppressed, he was content. In fact, that's the very word he used, was it, in Philippians 4.11. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I might ask us to move on to a second reason. We've already learned a bit about this first one, but consider another one. There are some who say it's not the right time. Maybe during the invitation song, you have thought more than once, tonight's going to be a better time. I'm just not ready right now. Wednesday night will be a better time. There'll be a few fewer people here then. Maybe next Sunday. I'll wait until then. And then the next Sunday comes around and the same kind of reasoning is used again. Procrastination. It's not the right time yet. I want to wait until there's a better, more opportune time for my public response and my public obedience. I wonder when that better day will ever come. I wonder, will the day of judgment arrive and you still will be waiting for that better, more opportune time? Friend, please realize this with me. We have not the slightest promise of tomorrow. Boast not thyself of tomorrow. For thou knowest not what a day may bring forth, to quote Proverbs 27, 1. You don't know that you'll be here Wednesday night. You don't know that next Sunday for you will ever come. In fact, for this world it may not come because the Lord may return. The fact is, you do not have any promise of tonight, of Wednesday, of next Sunday, or of any other opportunity. This one today might be the last one that you ever have. As we think about it from that perspective, might we consider some passages in the Bible? What about those that wait for a better time, for a more opportunity in terms of a situation? Felix in Acts 24 perhaps is the principal one that leaps to our mind. Here was a man before whom the Apostle Paul appeared, and Paul reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and the judgment to come. And that man trembled, the text says. He had come to the point in life to where, in fact, in terms of ease and in terms of his prescription, he had no thoughts until Paul set the truth before him. And when Paul reasoned of these matters that held eternity in sway, he trembled. But how did he respond? He said, Go thy way. When I have a more convenient season, I will call for thee. As far as we know, the more convenient season never came. 
as far as the biblical evidence supports, the more convenient season for Felix never came. I wonder if he left this life still waiting for the more convenient season. If he did, friend, he's lost. He is exactly where the rich man in Luke 16 then is now, and he has an eternity in hell waiting. We need to think soberly, do we not? In the character of soundness of mind, appreciating why wait for a better time? When we stand in just a few minutes and the invitation song is sung, if Satan has brought into your mind to wait for a better time, make sure to put that thought out of your head. There will never be a better time than this one. In 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2, that's the very language the Holy Spirit employed. Today is the day of salvation. In Hebrews 3 verse 7, Today, do not harden your hearts as in the provocation. That was an assertion that don't you have a hard heart like those Israelites did who often grumbled and complained and found other reasons. There were no reasons for their disobedience and there are none for your disobedience today. Let the Word of God urge you, touch your heart, and bring you to the point of obedience today if that's what you need to do. The second reason we have in fact learned is an impetus to act on what we know to be the truth. And don't delay. Don't procrastinate. What about a third reason? We have first of all considered, is it too restrictive to be a Christian? The answer is no. What about waiting for a better time? There will never be one. So far the two reasons that sometimes are given have been dispatched rather quickly. Consider if you would with me a third one. Many are somewhat concerned about what would my friends think if I became a Christian. Those with whom I have associated, those whom I have known and I have hung around with, I have in fact spent many hours with them. How will they think and what will they say if they learn that I have obeyed the gospel, if I have become a Christian, if I have rededicated my life to the cause of the Savior? What will their reaction be? Will they laugh at me? Will they insult me? Will they call me a goody-two-shoes and have nothing to do with me? Will they ostracize and separate themselves from me? Will I no longer be considered their friend? I'll frankly admit, that could happen. They might well do those things to you. They might call you names. They might wish to no longer welcome you into their circle of friends because you no longer do what they enjoy doing. I can't promise you that that will not happen. It might. My question to you again would be this. Given the difficulty of it and the fact it may occur, which again, in, from the perspective of eternity, is what is the better? Would you rather have them as a friend now and be bereft of the blessing of Jesus? Or would you rather have Jesus as your friend and bereft of their association in the short term at least? Maybe you've known individuals who perhaps were in that situation and in time one or more of those friends came to have such respect for the decision and such appreciation for what was involved that they too gave up some aspect of that sinful way of life. Maybe we've all known somebody in that situation. As you contemplate that with me, let's be very frank about what the Lord said. In John 15, verse 19, Jesus said, The world has hated me, and it will hate you too. We cannot expect to walk the fence in the sense of being friends of the world and being friends with the Lord at the same time. 
those friends who love the things of the world must be looked upon differently by those who love the Master and who love His Word. Is it any wonder that James then affirmed in James 4 verse 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Surely no one in his or her right mind would want to be categorized as an enemy of God. The decision thus rests with you and me. The friends may not like it. And you may suffer some persecution verbally because of it. But what is worth more to you, your soul or their friendship? Which will it be? Again, I can say the same thing as before. With a renewed strength in your person by the blessing of Christ and your devotion to His cause, you will be able to take their insults in stride. You will know that you have answered a higher calling and you will know that what stands before you is worth far more than anything that they have to offer. You will not regret the decision you make to serve the Savior. That statement is guaranteed so many times in the Scriptures. Can we not thus see John's reminder in 1 John 3.13, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We should thus appreciate and even expect that the world is not going to like the demeanor, the conduct, the behavior, the choice of the decisions that a child of God will reservedly make. Perhaps in finality, can we not at least see in 1 Corinthians 15.33, that rather penetrating passage that reminds us about companionships. Wasn't it there that Paul said, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Evil communications. And that reminds us who are Christians that if we choose to associate so closely with those of the world, and we are so often apart from association with those of God, we can come to adopt their practices and our mindset may eventually be that which we too are lost. We must choose our associates as carefully as we can, knowing that if we associate with a child of the devil, it likely won't be long till we will be one too. But on the other hand, if we associate with children of God, and we lift high things that the Bible encourages and appreciate those too that follow the Savior, we will be more likely also to follow that same Savior and to be strengthened in our walk of life. Thus, this third statement we have made, the reaction of friends. Maybe we can even see in one way the very behavior of Nicodemus as a bit of an example. In John chapter 3, verse 2, he came to Jesus at night. Perhaps he was concerned about what others would have thought about this Jewish person proceeding to inquire of the Master. However, we notice four chapters later in John 7, verse 50, Nicodemus defended in one way the statements of Jesus, and later Nicodemus aided in burying his body. It seems that Nicodemus came to identify closely with Jesus, and he wasn't ashamed of what others thought. And in fact, he didn't seem to care what they even thought. May you and I have that dignity of character today, that strength of backbone that we too are more interested in serving the Savior than what someone else may think about the decision that you and I have made. But maybe in the fourth place and in the final reason that we will consider this morning, we have dispatched to the other three rather quickly by noting that they each are stated in the Bible 
and they each are addressed in various and sundry ways. And so too, that will be the case of the last one. It might not be that a person would verbally come out and say it, but it might well be that the person is thinking, well, I'm already okay. I'm already all right. I don't need to respond to the gospel. I don't need to obey it. As you think about some of the statements that some might make, we know that there are various atrocities committed in this world every day. There are those that commit murder. There are those who beat their husbands or their children or their wives. There are those who kidnap and there are those who slaughter unborn babies. We know that there are atrocities and some thus might say, I haven't killed anybody. I've never kidnapped anyone. I don't purposefully lie. I try to do a good job in regard to my job and my family. I think I'm okay already. There are others who would say, well, I'm not an atheist. I believe there's a God. I believe that He had a son named Jesus. I believe the Bible's His Word. I'm, I'm okay. Are you really? Are they really? The central question is, what is it that causes a division between a person and God? Is it enough to be saved to just not be an atheist? Is it enough to be saved just to have never killed anybody? Is it enough to be saved just simply to believe that this is His Word? I think as we appreciate the statements of the New Testament, those are not the premises upon which one will inherit heaven. On judgment, God's not going to say, well, because you're not an atheist, go ahead and enjoy heaven. I'll guarantee you that's not what the Lord's response is going to be. You see, nowhere does he say it's enough just not to be these things. The problem is sin, isn't it? And as long as a person is overwhelmed, is guilty of sin, that person's lost. Not being an atheist isn't enough to cleanse sin, is it? Not having killed somebody is not enough to say one's sins are forgiven. The only agency... The only detergent, if you please, that cleanses sin is the blood of Christ. And the only way to rid sin is thus, to be an obedient follower of the statements of the Master. And so this thinking, well, I'm already all right. I'm already okay. I'm a good neighbor. That ought to be good enough. Friend, it's not good enough. And that's not just Randy speaking. That's the Bible. Remember again some of the verses we use at the outset of the lesson? Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Obedience is required. You and I, each of us, must do what he has said to do, or we are and shall be lost. In Romans 6, verse 17, the lesson text for today, but God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, and being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. This last reason, again, is no reason at all. We shouldn't thus think that I'm all right just because I live a, quote, good life. The only life that's good is the one that is in pursuit of the goodness of God. The only life that's good is the one in pursuit of the revelation of truth. Other than that, it's not good, no matter what human perception might be. Today, as you think about any of these things, 
Notice again the imperative of, of obedience. Satan, in just a moment, I have no doubt, if there's one or more here that needs to respond, is going to work his best to tell you a lie. He's going to work his best to tell you, wait till tonight. Wait till Wednesday. Wait till next Sunday. He's going to tell you a lie and say, you're all right the way you are. You don't need to go forward. You don't need to go in front of those people. You're going to be nervous. You're going to be anxious. Don't do it. He's going to tell you a lie and tell you that you don't really need to. Friend, don't believe him. In fact, give him a quick exit from your mind. The gospel call of invitation has been set forth and obedience to it is absolutely required in order to stand right and to stand just before God. We've looked somewhat briefly today at some of these lies Satan is so quick to tell. Lies like, it's not the best time right now. Lies such as, you're all right already. Lies such as the others that we had mentioned and I've listed there. Christian life is just not worth it. You can't have any fun and it's too restrictive. Lies such as also the one about what your friends might say. The question now comes to all of us. Do you want to go to heaven or are you happy to go to hell? Which is it? If you want to go to heaven, those four are not reasons. They, in fact, will not stand the test of scrutiny. And the Bible absolutely, in every case, kicks them aside as being unreasonable in terms of being right with God. He will not accept them as reasons. If you need to respond today publicly, don't delay, don't procrastinate. Today is the day of salvation. There's a room full of people that would be excited to see you come forward if you need to. We'll pray with you and for you in terms of one who's already a Christian but has walked away from the faith. We'll be happy to take the time to do that. There's no better way to spend the moments. If you've never obeyed the gospel, though, there will never be a better time than today. You've heard the Word of God this morning. Now believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Be willing to confess verbally the fact that He is the Son of God and then be baptized. A person will assist you by burying you in water, raising you to walk in newness of life. That can happen for you today. You need to make the first step. Won't you do it? Why put off obedience? Come forward if you would while together we stand and while we sing.